They say being a parent is a full-time job, but I already have one of those. Luckily, I use Instacart to help me order everything I need while I'm stuck in meetings all day. So while Instacart is helping me get groceries, snacks for school lunches, and something for at-home happy hour, I get more time back to juggle my day job and my mom job. Save time by downloading the Instacart app or visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first order using the code INGREDIENTS22. Offer valid for a limited time. Minimum order $10. Delivery subject to availability. Additional terms apply. The biggest thing that's changed, I feel like, is social norms. Like meeting people and just hanging out with friends is just not a thing anymore. But like now, it's, you know, for the last two, three weeks, you know, people are working. Everything seems to be getting to normal. And so, you know, you text a few friends. But like, it's really awkward. You know, I had one friend who said, you know, he has grandparents at home and, and you know, parents. And he basically is not allowed to meet other people. The other day I was going to meet friends and my girlfriend was like, who are you meeting? She was concerned. And it was like, suddenly you're thinking about if I go to meet friends, I take yourself into consideration, but all the people you regularly meet, it's, it's a really weird dynamic and it hasn't really quite been figured out yet. It's almost like you have to gradually whitelist your friends. Hello and welcome to China Talk, now posted on Lawfare. This week we're going to be trying something different. I've been interviewing my friends across China about their coronavirus experiences, Gusher FM style. We start off with Dev from Shanghai, who lived through the entire lockdown and has some interesting reflections on the lasting effects of social distancing. Next we talk with Jen, who partially grew up in and now currently lives in Hong Kong, about how her life has changed. Finally, Tianyu, who flew back mid-March to Beijing, went through mandatory self-quarantine and is currently navigating the bureaucratic mess of QR health codes. I'm planning on potentially doing a few more of these, so if you have a story you'd like to share, not just in China, but about living in Asia more generally, please reach out. Hi, I'm Dave, and I live in Shanghai, where I've been uh, since the since the outbreak. So I was in Jiangsu through the initial outbreak. So on the 21st, when she made a speech, and on the 23rd, I think, when Wuhan went to lockdown, I was over, over in uh, Shuzhou at my girlfriend's place for Chinese New Year. And I then made my trip back to Shanghai on the 27th, and I've been there since. I'm not going to lie. I spent like at least three, four nights on Twitter and generally surfing the web till like 4, 5 a.m., reading as much as I could about the virus. At that time, I knew nothing, you know, things like whether it was really risky, whether it was going to kill me. But I think it still didn't compete with my bigger fear, which was being locked down at girlfriend's family's place and not being able to leave and come back to Shanghai. I was super nervous about that. And I remember like calling friends in Shanghai and other parts, constantly monitoring, making sure like trains were not going to be shut down, that my Gautier ticket was not going to be canceled and I could make it back. (laughs) It was about a four hour train ride from Shuzhou to Shanghai. Um, I remember getting to the station and, you know, there was no lines, of course. So whether I had to take my ticket, my physical ticket, go through security, everyone was in a mask. I got to my seat and I, I took a picture. The only thing that was different really was I had fever checks or temperature checks at uh, the exit, you know, when you put in your ticket into the machine uh, before you leave. That was the only place and it was pretty non-intrusive. When I got to Shanghai, I was still, it, it still hadn't fully sunk in. And in a way, some parts of the city were still functioning normally. Like I didn't even feel like things had changed. There was no strict quarantine I stayed at home 
for at least like three, four days at a stretch, I would only venture out to go, go pick up groceries. The streets were empty compared to a normal sort of Shanghai day. You had like maybe 10% traffic. You had fever checks at the grocery store. But again, like the grocery store was pretty well stocked. Like there was everything there. I remember worrying at that point. The only thing that I was you know, trying to think back now was that it was that things were going to change even more drastically. It was like trains being shut down was going to be one thing. Flights being shut down was the next thing. But I could deal with not being able to leave, leave Shanghai. My biggest worry was, am I going to suddenly find out that like there's no the, that grocery store that's closed, that everything outside is closed, and that there's going to be like rations? You know, I remember I remember to like friends telling me what Shanghai was like in the 1980s before you know when Geiger Kaifeng hadn't really kicked in. And, you know, you had ration cards for, for meat and stuff like that. And I was like, if I have to, like, rely on ration cards for what I eat, that's when I'm going to start getting really, really depressed. I got to know my local Zhuehui a lot more than I ever did. You know, they would come around to my door every four or five days sometimes just to check in. They didn't take my temperature, but they would just ask me if I'm feeling fine. And uh, then they took my information to make sure that I would get my ration of masks. They would give me a mask every week which was kind of neat. Uh, in fact, they've been like super friendly and helpful. And I realized a, f- a week or so ago that actually they put up like a sheet of paper at the big, at the entrance of my shoutshu where everyone's name is and you're supposed to go and pick up your mask. But, you know, they just assume I'm like uh, a dumb lawa. And so they just called me instead, which I thought was super nice and convenient. I never really had noticed like my Jewelry ever before living in China. Like, it was just not a organization or a group of people that I had really interaction with. But you really start to f- realize how important they actually are in times like this. Like they are the ones who really implement and like interpret the, you know, the the tongzhe from upstairs. And they could have made life much harder for me. They, but you know, mine was pretty sweet. I know other people had much stricter rules for like getting out. And that was all up to like their local tour here. I remember getting, I remember getting the app where like you had the 10 cent map where they would show you people around. And I remember I found someone within like a kilometer of me. And this was still in the early days, you know, when you were still a bit anxious how many people were really infected because of the 14 day um, period. So I live on Changlulu. If anyone's familiar with Shanghai, they, you know, they might know the area. And there was this one bar called like Nana's Coffee. And they, they're like the one bar that I've seen that has been open the entire time. Like these guys stayed open till 1am, even though there was no one going. And like, they were really impressive. I once like sat down and had a beer there, which is for solidarity because they had, they had football on TV. There was no one there ever, but they were still on, they were still serving. And I was pretty impressed uh, with their resilience. Apart from that, like, where did I go? I, I remember I walked around a bit, I would go walk around every few days. I mean, Shanghai felt like the closest that it's ever felt to an actual European city where, like, especially on a Sunday where you have no one on the streets, shops closed. I never took the subway. Uh, to be honest, I still haven't taken the subway since since the outbreak. Although now it's pretty okay and, you know, most people take it. I remember when, so when things were kind of opening up and, I mean, at that time, it was what mid. It was the fourteenth of Feb, so businesses had, of, had officially opened, 
and things were starting to ease up. And I remember I had uh, I had some friends over in like a garden that I share with my neighbors. And like I had like initially I had two friends over. And then we had a couple of drinks and then a couple more friends joined. And it was just starting to becoming a thing. And then I remember my, my neighbors came down and like, you know, he pulled me to the side and he gave me like this like five minute lecture about the importance of like Anchuan and that this is, it's like eating, eating Shijian. And he was really, you know, like gave me this lecture, which, you know, at the time I, after the, like, after I got the lecture, I actually was pretty, pretty, pretty happy to get it in the sense that I, he actually impressed this idea of this communal safety and the fact that, you know, they could bring in uh, the virus that could affect them. My friends could bring it in, affect my neighbors. And it was something that I think after that, I actually paid a lot more attention to generally taking care of the the community around me. And I feel like watching reactions abroad, not just in India and in the US and Europe, I feel like this community, like thinking as a community, it was something that, you know, I, I thought I was thinking of beforehand, but like this, this like so, short rant slash lecture from a neighbor really shoved it into me. And I actually appreciated it. I didn't feel like he was, you know, being mean or anything. And, and we had a laugh about it a few days afterwards because he said that, you know, why the, the, like, I understand you as a Lao, I didn't get it, but what about the Chinese people, your Chinese friends? Like, you know, why were they there? Like they should have known. And I think that, that got him pretty taken aback. I'm like, it's kind of like becoming the closest to this, this great firewall where when you leave China, you're like, oh, I, ho- I I won't have to wear a mask. And that would be pretty, pretty cool. Like not having to put the VPN on kind of thing. The fever checks can be a pain, but like, you know, they're, they're actually moving pretty fast now. But like, you got just got to get used to that. Flashing the app, you know, when you go to the gym, the, the Jian Kang Ma app on Tencent, on Alipay or on WeChat, flashing that. All these kind of tiny things that are a pain. But I feel like, and I'm starting to realize this now, actually, for the last, past few days, is that the biggest thing that's changed, I feel like, is social norms. Like meeting people and just hanging out with friends is just not a thing anymore. Like... Initially, you know, even in February and like through parts of March, I never really actively looked out to meet people. But like now it's, you know, for the last two, three weeks, you know, people are working, everything seems to be getting to normal. And so, you know, you text a few friends, but like, it's really awkward. You know, what I had one friend who said, you know, he has grandparents at home and, and, you know, parents, and he basically is not allowed to meet other people. Like he goes to work and that's it, goes to work and comes back. Uh, and if he doesn't, and if he, and he prefers to drive, he doesn't take the TTA because of, you know, the risk. Like even messaging, texting friends to make plans, people are like, oh, where should we meet? We need some place that's open air, that won't be a lot of people. And like concern about like who the people you're meeting. Uh, like the other day I was going to meet friends and my girlfriend was like, who are you meeting? She was concerned. And it was like, suddenly you're thinking about if I go to meet friends, I'm not just... You don't have to have to take yourself into consideration, but all the people you regularly meet. So like if you if I go to the office or meet other people that I regularly meet, like I'm a risk to them. It's it's a really weird dynamic and it hasn't really quite been figured out yet. So it's it's kind of strange, like making friends, like making plans to meet people. It's just not the same anymore. Uh, and like I'm still trying to navigate myself through that. It's almost like you have to gradually whitelist your friends. So like there's a few friends that I, that I meet regularly. So I kind of like have, have them whitelisted. So if I meet them, neither of us, you know, that bothered and we sort of have our routine. But like once you start expanding, especially to like just, you know, 
people like social gatherings and meetings and networking and that kind of stuff it feels like it's it's still super awkward and i i mean i don't know to what extent this is going to be applicable to people in other countries like i mean we can see in europe or even in new york i guess people are still going out to parks even in the midst of the crisis so you know my guess is this is this may just be a china thing but who knows i know people i know like two three other friends of friends uh, who have been laid off so it's uh, and this is just, i'm guessing this is the tip of the iceberg so i feel like the i feel like the economic effects were fe- were starting to feel now now that attention shifted away from like corona being the biggest biggest threat but it's but it's hard to say like i've been i've been talking every time i go to restaurants or or shops in the mall I like ask around or ask the ask the people there what business is like and they're telling me that it's still under 50% like people are not really coming. I was also wondering and this is maybe because of my own personal ha- my own change in personal habits is like to what extent this will also shift like habits among jolingo especially like the, you know our generation who were so used to not never cooking and always you know either why am i or eating out and just like almost never cooking to the point where you never really believed that you could really cook to the level of that you enjoyed and so you just like stopped doing it and and i feel like there's been a big change there like krish raghav had a great piece on new yorker on how on the live streaming and and cooking together and the solidarity and i feel like and and I, and, I, and i feel like this may actually create some sort of long term people realize that actually cooking at home is possible you can actually do it it can be pretty tasty you feel better you're healthier and maybe you even save more money and it's like um like a large scale lifestyle change my girlfriend's company you know clients so she does ai product for hr and right now none of her clients are hiring they all stopped hiring right now maybe like 10 15 companies or pretty large major companies all like currently have a pause on hiring um i think the the effects will sort of come down in waves as people down the sort of supply chain are gradually affected uh, it's going to be a it's going to be a depressing year hey guys i'm jen i live in hong kong I've been here since September of 2019. Yeah, so in the the first rumblings kind of began. I remember a few friends were in a group chat. He kind of forwarded this article about some sort of unknown virus that was coming from Wuhan, China, and some there was kind of some inkling that this might be an issue, but everyone kind of just ignored it and went on with their lives. And this was like end of December, so it didn't really seem like a huge issue. the days leading up to the chinese new year so 23rd even on january 22nd i noticed more people were wearing masks and pr- progressively each day the percentage of people wearing masks just increased up to the point on january 25th it almost felt like 90% of everyone of the population was wearing masks and at the time i actually didn't have uh i was trying to look for masks it was really difficult and they're all, pretty much all sold out so I was actually struggling to find masks and I felt, you know, at that point when everyone around you is wearing masks, I felt a little stupid for not wearing one <laughs> because Hong Kong went through SARS in 2003. They really did experience the real impact of not reacting quickly enough at the time. So I think they have that 
institutional memory that really helped them react much faster in this situation. So I think they're in general Hong Kongers, like the way they react to sickness is um, wearing masks. Like I remember even in the office, just even if a colleague was, you know, just sneezing or not feeling so well, they will wear a mask, even if even just just to prevent from trans, you know, getting other people sick. So I think that I think this is probably some a behavior that was adopted after t- 2003 because of SARS. So it's interesting how that really, I think, helped Hong Kongers react much faster in in their in towards the COVID. And, and, and you know, it's very normalized to wear masks, whereas I think in the Western world or in most other places in the world, wearing a mask is kind of stigmatized in some ways. So I actually went to Singapore for Chinese New Year, and it was so interesting in how different things were at the, at that time. This was um, end of January, beginning of February. And at the time, the Singaporean government was telling everyone, you shouldn't wear a mask unless you're sick. So if you see anyone wearing a mask in Singapore at that time, I would say they, it was almost kind of stigmatized because you either are seen as being, you know, someone who is sick or you are someone who is taking precious resources away from frontline workers, right? Whereas in Hong Kong, the opposite was true. In Hong Kong, if you're walking around without a mask, people kind of looked at you and stared at you and would tell you, oh, actually wear a mask, you know? And there were signs in a lot of public areas that you can't enter restaurants if you don't wear a mask. So yeah, it's just really interesting how these, you know, Singapore and Hong Kong are being held up as models for how to react, uh, how governments should react to COVID. But they honestly reacted quite differently to COVID, at least in the beginning. I think things are changing now since WHO and CDC have also recommended that it's better to wear some sort of mouth covering. But but at the time in the beginning, Singapore and Hong Kong actually had very different responses, even though everyone kind of looks to these two city states as as models to learn from. So I think the standard on how like companies, their policies in terms of work from home policy, they usually uh, follow the Hong Kong government. So as soon as the Hong Kong government says we want, you know, as soon as civil servants are working from home, most private companies follow suit. So for my company, they actually did the same thing. They started uh, this work from home policy. But because my company is very operational, at least some of the teams, they have to be, you know, in the office to get work done or in. So they actually did an A, B team split up, split. So half the team would go to the office for half of the week and then the other half of the team would come the latter half of the week. So I think that was a way to manage, you know, just so that if one person gets sick, not the whole team doesn't, you know, fall sick. <laughs> so that was kind of the way that things are working with work from home. I guess it was kind of strange because you would only see half of the team in the office and it, they were trying to be very strict about you, you shouldn't be, you know, socializing with your colleagues after work. I came to Hong Kong in September of 2019. So that was right in the middle of the protest. And it only got more intense towards the end of 2019. And so once COVID started, it became, it kind of tampered down. Or, or I mean, the, the, the protest definitely, like there was a lull at, by the end of December. And then by beginning of January, I think, you know, once the virus really kicked in, I think the protest pretty much like fizzled out. But, you know, it doesn't mean that the spirit or, of the protest is still, it's still there. You can still see it. And for example, like when I go on my runs along the harbor, there's oftentimes graffiti, you know, under bridges or in overpasses. And I noticed the one graffiti was painted on the wall and it says, 
it was directed at the Hong Kong police and it says COVID is karma towards the Hong Kong police is, you know, kind of indicating like, oh, this, uh, a lot of the oppression that people might have Hong Kongers felt to, because of the Hong Kong police. This is COVID is like is revenge that to kind of punish the Hong Kong police in 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 some ways, and so I think there are several things about it. The fact that karma is kind of a mentality that um, I think is reflective of the Buddhist mentality that a lot of Asians or maybe Chinese people have, it, and it shows that you know Hong Kongers also have that mindset. COVID only adds more fuel to people's anger in the way they see mainland China. The protesters see COVID and it is only it only makes a stronger case for, against mainland China. And unfortunately, um, another thing that happened was there was this restaurant that also started, there was a notice outside of the restaurant saying that they were not going to welcome anyone who speaks Mandarin. And But they said, but with the exception of welcoming friends from Taiwan. And I mean, obviously this is still... There's two two layers. One is that obviously like the protests already created this layer of of anger towards mainland China. I think it was more so directed at the government, but now it's becoming way more personal. Now they're they're directing anger and frustration at Chinese people and Chinese speaking people. So I think this is quite problematic. I haven't personally felt that the protests are necessarily reviving itself and maybe it's just people are too concerned about covid at this point so but it'll be interesting to see how after covid how people might react and whether the protest might actually revive itself at a greater intensity because of covid the protest only felt like a long time ago i yeah it seems like hong kong has just had a really bad year starting from like around august september and when I say bad year, I mean, I would say it's bad for businesses. A lot of businesses have been shut down. I know restaurants have gone out of business and, you know, most likely won't recover because simply there's not enough people going out to eat anymore. And certainly now COVID is definitely not helping at all. So I think this is it. It really is kind of sad because a lot of those small mom and pop stores aren't probably not going to revive itself. And the ones that can survive are like the big, you know, chains that are, they don't have as much of the local character, maybe. Hong Kong is really a cramped city, um, as everyone knows. And I I mean, I live on Hong Kong Island side, so I definitely feel that, you know, right as after I get out of my apartment, it's almost, yeah, it is, it almost feels like it's impossible to really social distance. And, and the... I mean, also the fact that Hong Kong is shutting down a lot of public spaces like parks or recreational spaces. I mean, the the goal is to prevent people from gathering in these spaces. But I think ironically, because there are fewer of these public spaces that are available, actually, I find that more Hong Kongers are actually gathering in, in like, for example, they would go out for a hike. And because there's so few public spaces like 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 hiking trails or or parks that are open these days. So then they actually limit more, limit the already, the limited available uh, available spaces. So it, it actually feels more dangerous that when, for example, when I'm going on a hike, I always often feel like I have to walk by a lot of other people who are also <laughs> trying to get some fresh air. So it's, it's definitely difficult trying to self social distance. And, and in general, like supermarkets are, I mean, the lines are still pretty long. So it's almost, it's really difficult to really feel like you can avoid people at all. So a lot of Hong Kongers or, or just foreigners were coming to Hong Kong. And, and then you see a, um, a spike in cases. 
And so that was kind of an interesting scenario in which foreigners who, you know, and oftentimes Caucasians are, are when they come, when they're walking around Hong Kong, and sometimes some of my friends who are Caucasian were, were saying that they sometimes were shunned or maybe slightly discriminated against, which is ironic because, you know, usually that doesn't happen. But in this case, I think Hong Kongers were fear, Hong Kongers were fearful of foreigners and, and the fact that oftentimes actually foreigners don't wear masks. It's I, I don't know why in the beginning, at least uh, whenever you see someone who's not wearing a mask, almost 70% of the time uh, that person might be a Caucasian or foreigner. So yeah, it's just an interesting behavioral difference that you would notice um, among people in Hong Kong. But, you know, I think Hong Kongers are quite uh, upfront about it. They would go, I was with a, a bunch of British descendants and I they were not wearing masks when we were out, out and about. And I remember this happening three times, but local Hong Kongers would go up to them and tell them, you know, please wear a mask. You should wear a mask. Like, And they're very upfront about that. So I think Hong Kongers really do care about this and they're not afraid of telling people how to how to act. Hi guys, I'm, I'm Tianyu. I'm a high schooler, but I also write for a bunch of media outlets, mostly on China and Asia in general. So I was actually on spring break when the entire thing was unfolding. I was in Boston, didn't have, didn't, I, I, I heard that a bunch of colleges were shutting down. I didn't know what to do. My family is in China. They've been in China since December. So I decided that I'd go to Beijing because I didn't have anyone in Massachusetts when, when when the numbers were like rising up. So I decided two nights before that I fly to Toronto and to Beijing. So I, I went to the airport. I flew to Toronto. I didn't wear a mask until I got to the Toronto airport. And I, walked, I went into the line of, the, of my flight to China. So suddenly everybody was wearing a mask. I actually think it was mandatory that you wear a mask. But we were basically the only passengers in the terminal that were wearing a mask. We boarded, we got our temperature checked, and everybody on the on the plane was on a every, basically everybody on the plane was was wearing like protective gear. It, um, so it was like a 12, 13 hour flight. On on the flight there were people who were college students. I think there were parents who were visiting family in Canada and then they had to go back for whatever reason. It was a, it was basically a full flight. We landed in Beijing. We were asked to sit there for about an hour, and after that, we were basically we were we were allowed we were allowed to uh, leave the plane. So you had I don't know like hundreds of people lining up in the airport for uh, just you know writing down your address, uh, contact information, and they, they actually verified it. So like they would let you, make you call that num- their number so they can see your um, contact information there. They got our temperature. It was like a scary scene. It was like, because everybody was in like full protection, which is kind of bizarre and surreal. And and the entire process took like two, three hours. And we were basically dispatched to different buses and we were sent to the quarantine facilities in, in Shui. So, so I, because I was lucky, I was allowed home to, for, for home quarantine because I arrived before the 16th when they basically forced everybody to go to a hotel for quarantine in Beijing. So emotionally, it was it was scary, right? It was scary because, first of all, you knew you could catch the virus at any time. It was like a, a closed space and you're I'm sitting 
uh, next to people, and that's definitely not six feet away. I don't think my neighborhood actually cared that much because I was one of the only people who came back from abroad. I think I was one of the only like or two or three families. I was able to get deliveries and takeouts, and the guards would deliver to my to my door. But later, I mean, in the end, they sort of got pissed because I was ordering too much coffee. Uh, but it, it was it was mostly smooth. I get phone calls basically every day or every other day asking. Like either it was either the the neighborhood people or is like the police station asking me, you know, if, are you at home? Are you okay? They even offered me a COVID nineteen like test. I didn't do it because they asked me to go to the hospital, which I didn't want to because I was afraid of you know cross infection uh, or stuff like that. But it was mostly smooth, and I have to report my temperature twice a day. Oh no, nobody was ta- nobody was actually taking the temperature. I just I just texted them, and nobody verified. I didn't have to take a picture or anything, which would have been scary because I was using my my. So I was using Fahrenheit on my thermometer. Like if it, it says like ninety six, it probably would like surprise Norson like that. So I was assigned a health code when I first got here. So there are three statuses: green means you're you're good to go, you're healthy, and you're allowed to go wherever you want. And then there's orange. Orange is you are you're 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 being quarantined at home, and then there's red. Red means you're being quarantined at a facility, right? So like a hotel or something like that. So I don't know why, but for the entire time my my health code was green. So this is so there are different actually different systems for health code. There's Beijing health code. There's uh, health code from the central government. There's health code from, from like uh, cell phone carriers that get your data from you know, the places you've been. And my Beijing health code just turned red like a week after my quarant- my home quarantine en- ended. And it was like yesterday. So it was really weird. I didn't know who I, uh, who I was supposed to talk to. I called their tech support and they asked me to call Beijing CDC. And Beijing CDC, I, I, couldn't, I couldn't reach Beijing CDC because too many people were calling them. And my friend had the same problem and she called Beijing CDC. But Beijing CDC asked her to call another her district CDC, which referred her back to Beijing CDC. So neither of us had any idea. Neither of us had any idea who we we're supposed to be talking to. So my 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 health code is still red. So if anybody sees it, they might send me back to a, send me to a hotel or something. I don't even know. I don't know what would happen to me. But a lot of stores offer you different options. So if you if I walk into a an office building that has like offers me two options, right? So maybe there's a, a China Unicom health code and there's a Beijing health code. I'll just scan the China Unicom one because that one's normal. So it's it's really bizarre. It it feels like it's like the idea of a relevant organ. Uh, right? Like what the tech support said was that you should be contacting whoever sends you into quarantine, which I don't know who that is because I spoke with like five six agencies and i arrived from the i arrived from the airport i've been in touch with the police station with my neighborhood officials with the, my local cdc i don't know who that person is right like i had no idea who to reach out to so it was kind of frustrating what i found was a pretty big issue that's like underreported is that just like so, how much social stigma there is like against people who are who either have cached the coronavirus 
or who are who have returned from abroad or a different city or a different province, especially Hubei or you know one of the places where there was an outbreak. And just I I don't think I know anyone, any Chinese person who got COVID nineteen. I mean, I'm pretty sure I probably know a bunch of them, but they just never said. They would never come out and say, you know, I got this on their like WeChat moments. I've been trying to ship masks to the U.S. and turns out the regulations are super strict. So there's like a maximum number of masks they can ship, and they can't be medical, right? So there, there, there shouldn't be any sign that says it's medical, or like some logistics companies、uh, won't take it. I was trying to ship a hundred masks. To a friend in the U.S., and apparently it was like two came in two boxes, and each of them is like fifty boxes.、Uh, and I went to、uh, SF Express, and they were like, "Yeah, we can't ship a hundred masks. It has to be ninety nine." So I had to open everything and just to take out one mask, just to take out one mask from the two boxes. And they had to count the entire thing.、Uh, they had to open both boxes and to count the fifty, the ninety nine boxes, ninety nine masks. Which is like super weird. So I saw all these like posts on WeChat about like mostly from international students who are trying to book like charter private charters to China. They're ridiculously expensive,、uh, and I think they're like overcharged. But it just like it just surprises me how worried people are. And not unreasonable, but still, like they're 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 looking for private charter. And these are these aren't the people who are like super rich, like they're not the richest people I know. But like they're just upper middle class Chinese families trying to get their、uh, kids home, but like paying like thirty grand or something like that one way, which is kind of ridiculous. But like I think I understand, even though they're kids, like we we're talking about like middle school, high school kids, or like. Undergrads in college, like undergrads in college, I don't. That's like a little bit different. But I know a lot of like high school kids who don't have like guardians or or parents in the U.S. or in Canada. So I think that actually makes sense a bit. And people were really mad. Oh, another thing was that a lot of Chinese students were really mad. Chinese parents were really mad when China decided to cut international flights because the the Chinese. Aviation agency basically said you you can each airline can only operate one flight to. Each country, which is kind of basically effectively cutting all international flights. So now Chinese students can't come back to China, and a lot of Chinese parents are really pissed. And that's ironically, that's basically the Chinese probably in the line for the past like four or five years. And you, you see the recurring theme being, if you're a Chinese citizen, people China will pr- protect you. Sort of like you know the same idea that we saw in American propaganda like two decades ago or something like that. But now like. All these people realizing that you know, well, if you're in the U.S., people Chinese government isn't going to send private charters to you and then bring you home. Like, I'm pretty sure there are parents who think they're not they're not going to send their kids abroad anymore, just because they're they're super worried. I I saw a lot of like worried parents. Like my own parents were worried, and they told like all their friends and like. My own parents are like, oh, I, if I had a second chance, I wouldn't send my kids to the U.S.、Uh, I know they probably still would, but they were just like talking to other people just because how anxious they were. I, I don't. I, I'm pretty. I'm. I'm completely ready to start college on Zoom. 
it's much much more expensive than Coursera, but you know, it's uh, it's the connections, right? I'll still add my friends on LinkedIn, my classmates. <laughs> that that's that's what it's about. 